Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine. So, the first podcast of 2017, and what a podcast we have lined up. Not only are we joined by our brand new editor, Nick Trott, on my right, we've also managed to pin down two-time Le Mans winner, Alex Wirtz, to a Sofitel at Heathrow's Terminal 5. Uh, I'm also joined by Simon Aaron, our features editor, and behind the camera, Alan Hyde. Um, Alan, thank you again for all your hard work. Um, Alex, I was going to start with, I think, the most left-field start to a podcast ever, um, and talk about Steven Spielberg's E.T., and the, apparently that had an influence on you becoming a BMX rider, which was your kind of first foray into professional sport. Well, <laughs> first let me say hello to uh, the viewers and listeners wherever they are in the world. Uh, thanks for being with us. Yes, E.T., Steven Spielberg, what a film it was. And uh, <laughs> it brought an, a big wave into Europe, into the childhood dreams, which was the BMX bike. Maybe if you remember, E.T. was... Uh, been driven by Elliot, I think, on a BMX bike, and we saw these bikes, and it's like, my God, this is so cool! And then we researched, and it was when BMX really started booming, and that got me hooked on on these two wheels. And uh, because you obviously you you kind of on, but then motorsport kind of came in. You started karting. Um, you were not a perfect shape for karts because you were so tall, but BMX is you're obviously a very good shape for. You won the world championship age twelve. Why go from pedal power to to karting uh, is a good question and now how mo our mobility is going we very soon go back to pedal power and <laughs> forget the <laughs> combustion I, I, I won't I won't go back <laughs> yeah. to pedal power I'm, I'm with you I'm a petrol head but uh, it's actually you just need to again look at my family history and it, it we are racers uh, it was my granddad uh, was my father he was three times European champion in rallycross the first FA ground champion in rallycross actually as it's a booming sport and I love it, I'm quite happy to mention it because uh, <laughs> strength to my old man. And um, so I grew up on the racetrack and uh, then I had this BMX racing which really uh, was cool and I'm so happy I did it because it, I learned a lot for my life in, in this period of time and being age 11, 12, 13, traveling around the world. Um, I had a sponsor who paid for it, it was Adidas, it was really cool stuff. But the moment I saw a go-kart, uh, the BMX bike got dusty and I was, uh, for me it was always clear to be a motor racer. So it's interesting you mentioned rallycross because uh, have, have you tested a rallycross car recently or, d or are you about to test a rallycross car? Did I hear that right? Yeah, I already uh, drove it and uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you've, 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 um, you've kind of retired from racing several times and come back to racing several times and then retired again and then come back again. There are, I mean, it'd be a fantastic thing to follow in your father's wheel tracks and do a bit of rallycross, wouldn't it? Particularly so at the time that the sport's you know, exploding like it is. Uh, yeah, I agree, but I have to say something. is I did retire from professional racing, 
But when I said that, I said I will do one-offs because I still love racing and I have no problem doing it. The only thing I don't want to do anymore is to put a full season effort in a factory program as race driver. And I stuck to that. And that's why also I don't think it will work out for me racing the full Rallycross World Championship. Even so, I'm in discussion with Team Austria, who runs a very professional organization who organized the test for me. Uh, as much as I would love to, the reason I stopped racing is because my entrepreneurial interest is just taking over um, for the two years of age. In this sense, I really want to move on from being behind the wheel of being in the management of the sport and my road safety and racetrack business. Did you ever consider um, when you were making, when you were riding BMX and you're you driving cars, did you consider that one of them might actually be a career or was it still just for the hell of it at that, at that time? Only for doing it right in that moment, uh, especially in the early days. Until you maybe become a professional, you never think of the day after, uh, or I never did. Maybe I should have, um, but you only do it because you love it, and that was so cool about athletes and sports people. That even later, when they go into the management, bottom line, deep inside, they love it. So it's a very puristic view and simple view of of whatever you're doing. Um, it's, you know, obviously, motor racing is an extremely difficult sport to get to the top of. I think everyone knows that, but I, I think some current drivers would be surprised at the kind of the lengths and the struggle that, that you had, the lengths you went to and the struggle you had. Because I was reading that you'd, you, were, when you were doing Formula Ford, obviously step up from, from karting, um, you went off to New Zealand to do a couple of rounds and money was so tight that you, you couldn't pay the hotel or and you, I seem to remember sharing a Big Mac. T tell us about kind of the struggle in Formula Ford <laughs> and how, how difficult it was. Yeah, so I mean, karting I did on the lowest budget possible. I, I did my own engine uh, tuning or ended up uh, always retiring uh, but it was anyway a fun lesson but then went to Formula Ford and we had uh, a gentleman with us who whilst he was in New Zealand his company folded so I then had to pay some of the bills of his but that was not in the budget and we ended up on the last day in, in the last race that we knew we cannot pay the hotel but you got prize money when you were in the top three. So we banked on me again finishing <laughs> in the top three. It worked. Absolutely no pressure. <laughs> it worked for the few races before, but then I shunted, so we had no prize money. So then the hotel owner was not very happy, but he basically then said, okay, off you go back to Austria. <laughs> so, which we did. And on the airport, we got very hungry and we had no money, no breakfast. We found enough little coins between the three of us to buy one Big Mac and then we asked, the Big Mac to be shared and then a nice employee at McDonald's cut the Big Mac in three pieces and that was the New Zealand trip but it was such a cool time um, and anyway we survived so <laughs> it is amazing it's, it's something you obviously didn't mention then was you were uh, runner-up in the 89 Austrian championship in karting despite your height um, and then in Formula Fords, you went in and you won the 92 German Formula Ford Championship. Um, by this stage, compared to your um, contemporaries, you were already very tall. Were, were people at this stage saying, Alex, do you think you should maybe think about a career in touring cars or, or sports cars? Or, and and did you, you obviously didn't listen to them, but was that something already at that age that people were kind of saying to you in terms of your height? Yeah, uh, from the first day on in motorsport, in karting, I was penalized by size and especially back then weight I was overweight in karting 
later on I was overweight in Formula One as well for uh, one particular season. But uh, yeah, uh, but I said, anyway, I'm here, I want to try. And uh, every person who I've met until I've been in F1 said, it's like, you will not make it in F1 because people will not make a chassis for you, which they had to do many teams later. But then if someone tells me that, I'm even more eager to go and <laughs> succeed. Um, so yeah. yeah. And uh, you were saying before we came on air that actually there was a BMW drive that uh, you, you might have got if you actually fit into the, fit into the monocoque. Um, just tell us a bit about that and then who got the drive and, and, yeah. and what happened there. Yeah, we spoke about uh, uh, size because you're also tall, uh, so you understand what it means. We're, we're actually both normal, it's just these two are very yeah, short. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, B45 in the post. Yeah. <laughs> so there was in all my career, of course, I had difficulties with weight and fitting, but it was one particular drive. It really didn't work out because I didn't fit the chassis. And that was with Sauber when they were with BMW. Um, I went there over midnight to check that I fit in because it was late in the design stage of the car. And they have already done the crash test and I didn't fit. And they couldn't modify the chassis in time for me to race. And that race seat became then Robert Kubitzas, who I, I, made a w I made him aware of my difficulties. He's a little bit smaller than me. So he just made sure he fits and says, yes, it's okay. And then he had a good career there. So um, indirectly I helped him, but I just literally didn't fit and couldn't drive the car. So can I ask quickly, the, the, you must have then a, a real insight into not only the, the, the height issues, but the weight issue with uh, being a driver. And obviously a couple of years or so ago, um, the weight of a Formula One driver in particular was, was in all of the headlines and rumours of people passing out. What, what was your assessment of, or what is your assessment of pressure on driver weight in, in Formula One at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting one, because in theory, motorsport is actually a fantastic role model for other sports where... It doesn't matter how tall, how small, how heavy you are. We include the driver's weight since I think 20 odd years into the overall performance weight. So it shouldn't matter. If there wouldn't be uh, technical meetings where engineers decide over rules for the next few years. And then most, li most of the times I find them very optimistic in terms of how heavy or light the cars will be and then they're usually heavier than they think. And then that leaves very little room for driver weight. And that's what happened the last few years with especially the curse uh, technology, hybrid technology coming in, that instead of being quite relaxed with 80 or 90 kilos of potential driver weight, it shrunk down to 70. And that means everyone has to kind of be ultra light. And then we had these stories uh, like Hülkenberg, etc. But also myself back in the Benetton days, then you're overweight. And if you're overweight, let it be 2 kilos or 12 kilos, whatever it is, that's extra ballast you carry against the other world's best drivers. So that's just not going to work. You're not going to run a marathon with a rucksack and think you can win it. And, and that's more or less what overweight means for a driver. God, if I was going to get down to 70 kilos, I'd, I'd actually have to chop off a leg. <laughs> or both, actually. <laughs> There's no way I'd ever get down to that. Or you leave the wallet. Is <laughs> yes, well, um, so obviously... Sports cars has been a huge part of your career, um, but your taste of sports cars came quite early with the Nurburgring 24 Hours. Um, how old were you? How did that drive come about? And how old were you then? Because you, it, you, it was very early on in your motorsport career, wasn't it? Yeah, super early. Uh, God, forgot if I was 
18 or 19, but it was very early and the mighty Nürburgring, the green hell as uh, Jackie Stewart calls it, um, was an amazing experience. I mean, what a race it is. I drove in a Porsche, had experienced teammates. Uh, one of my teammates uh, was a long-term friend uh, as well, who now designs most of the racetrack. So he's again a competitor in my other business, Hermann Tilke. But we had a really cool race and I love endurance racing, to be honest. And, but the real first love for motors, for sports cars particularly, came when I was 11. I went to a motor show and there was this Group C of Walter Lechner. And uh, my father knew Walter and Walter asked me, young boy, ah, you want to sit in my car? And then I sat in this uh, 962 Porsche. They closed the door and I was inside this cockpit. And suddenly it made like a click and it's like, I love it. And that, that was the uh, love I still carry to sports cars. Because I think the shape uh, sexy, the racing is heroic and it's so authentic in what it is. It's just a crazy idea of man and machine racing over 24 hours in this ultra cool looking cars. And that's what um, made me always really in love with endurance racing. Do you feel, do you feel that the, the balance of the sport is slightly wrong at the moment in that Formula One drivers often have to drive percentage races to make the tyres last or have been doing recent years. And Le Mans, which always used to be a percentage management race, now with all the electronic guardian angels and things, the cars can go flat out. I mean, the, almost the kind of profiles have reversed, haven't they? A little bit. Profiles did reverse somehow. Um, I don't think it is the only problem. Well, let's let's uh, maybe not use the word problem because uh, it could be misinterpreted. But uh, yeah, sports car racing now is definitely not looking after anything. is flat out from start to go. Yet we have um, to manage the energy levels with uh, quite a complex um, uh, regulations. But we are not selling it as complex. We are just selling it, and it is uh, technology will will which will be used later on on the road. Mm, so it's yeah. very relevant. Uh, despite it being actually quite complex, um, but very cool actually. Once you race it and drive it and it's flat out, uh, then a 24-hour race becomes a real challenge. And it's also very interesting that Toyota, previously Audi, um, and <coughs> excuse me, uh, you know they've, they've come up with very different and Porsche very different solutions to arrive at more or less the same kind of performance level. It's fantastic. No, it's it's awesome, but you will see engineering. Uh, um, let it be Japanese, German, or whatever. Of course, with a large British influence of so many engineers in there, um, they are narrowing down now to all a very similar solution, having started on quite different uh, uh, starting points. Uh, but that's beautiful because if these manufacturers wouldn't compete, the development circle would be way slower because. Only recently with uh, a top guy in Silicon Valley, he asked, so what could we learn from motorsport? Because he's quite anti-motorsport. I said, like, the development speed of motorsport is significantly faster because of competition. So if I would be a Silicon Valley company, even if I'm not interested at all in, in competition and measuring against each other, I would still do competition within the team within your own organization to have faster development circles because if we humans get competitive we develop much faster than with, without having pressure or competition. So do you think in the same way then that I, mean, I believe that having that competition in Formula E 
well, in the same way that mobile phone batteries used to be this big and now this big and last for days, the Formula E will help us to develop road car batteries that are actually have a decent range and you know can be interchanged quite quite easily. Yeah, I think Formula E is, is um, at the moment the e-mobility is still a niche, but it's amazing how it's growing. So it's definitely ticked the right time and is it the right time and space. So that's very cool. Uh, but don't forget also battery technology has started already in F1 quite a few years ago with Curse. Then it was dropped, but it's it's back and in the World Endurance Championship as well. So mobility is about re recovering energy and dealing uh, with energy and that's coming into motorsport and we can and maybe shall not stop that uh, because it's technology. We have to deal with it and in motorsport we have to make sure is how can we make it lighter, faster, safer. I don't, motorsport is an incredible proving ground and, and a way to advance. When you look at the very early curves or the first curve system compared to the one 12 months later, and just the size of it with the same amount of power is, is I mean, it's, it's amazing, the, the change. Um, I'm going to rewind a little bit to sort of the 90s, obviously. You went into Formula 3, came to do a hair's whisker of the title, um, but you then went into international touring cars. Um, with Opal, how how did that come about? And I, I seem to remember reading somewhere that you you really enjoyed that. It was a great fun kind of period of your motorsport career. Yeah, uh, after Formula Ford, where I won the German Championship and the European Cup, um, I had no money. Then um, and, and, and a third of a Big yeah. Mac. <laughs> 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 then. Um, found a uh, racing season which was half Germany, half Austria in, in F3 with Dr. Marco um, because he in the end said, this, look, you, you dominated Formula Ford, I take a risk here, I'll run you. That didn't end up that well. Got a chance with uh, Opel in F3 for very low money. Nearly won the championship, unfortunately with a stupid crash I made, I lost the championship, Jörg Müller won it. But then again, had no money. And then um, said, okay, I will be a driver instructor in my father's uh, road safety school, which is great job, good stuff. And last minute, someone from Opel called me and says, ah, look, we have this two-year-old car. We need to run eight cars in the championship. Opel Austria would be excited if you uh, race. Austrian TV will come with you. Would you race? I said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew it's a really old car and I will have no testing, very little development. But any, honestly, I had nothing else to do at the time, which was I was happy about. Of course, not happy that the car was old, but it was a decisive uh, moment because I was put in Team Just, and then uh, I got a great relationship with, uh, with Reinhold Just and the team uh, managers who then used me for a test in their Le Mans program and that kickstarted my career, but maybe that's not where you want no, to go I was, I was literally about to, go, <laughs> I was about to come on to that because it's funny, I'd, I didn't realise that that Opel ITC drive kind of came about just, just like that. Um, because without that, obviously, as you said, you wouldn't have got this opportunity, which I guess, is it fair to say, kind of changed your motorsport career on this, this one um, Le Mans test? Because you went to Paul Ricard's, I think, in the dark, having never driven there, um, and then was faster than everyone else? Is that, is that am I rem remembering correctly? Yeah, that was the highlight of my career. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the only one. Uh, no, what happened is that uh, one of the, I always went through years to the factory and said, ah, I want to see the sports car, you know, the 
prototypes. So they realized I have this love. And then Reinhold just found it quite interesting and maybe sweet. I don't, I don't know what he thought. But one day he called me and says, hey, Alex, one of my drivers, Pierluigi Martini, he has fever and I'm running this endurance test. So can you help us? I, I said, well, I'm already there. So jumped in the car, literally drove there. We made a seat uh, at eight or nine in the evening. And I was supposed to start in the morning, but then the drivers, the car was reliable. They felt tired. And then he said, man, you have to drive now. It was... Uh, one in the morning, never been on the track, never driven sport car, it was even on the right side, so the wrong side for us Europeans. And they described me the track and for some magic reasons in the third lap I've set the fastest lap time of the tests and there were very fast drivers there. So then they started checking the data if I did a shortcut <laughs> <laughs> and they asked me if I'm completely stupid. I said, no, well you said turn one is flat and senior is flat, so why should I lift? <laughs> And then Smoking like a tree racing driver, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, anyway, also the testing, I did no mistake. They asked me for a second test. I again was um, uh, same lap times, maybe the fastest, or just hundreds of being fastest. And that led to an offer for me to race in Le Mans. And then we won the Le Mans race in my first attempt. And uh, that definitely changed my career. And it meant from now on, I need no more money to race. Yeah, because it's, it's worth saying that you, you had to bring budget, even in those early stages of your sports car career, didn't you? It wasn't, it wasn't come, and, come and have a drive and we'll, we'll pay you. <laughs> well, it was supposed to be like this, but then three weeks before Le Mans, Reinhold just called me, probably because he's seen the, the costs for his private jet to Le Mans. He <laughs> says he needs 15,000 German marks, which is 8,000 euros. So actually nowadays you think it's nothing, but for me at the time it was like, oh, that's a deal break, I cannot do it. And he said, well, you have three weeks, let's try. So I ran around of whole Austria to find a sponsor. I found some spo one sponsor who is a clothes company and also imported skateboards. He said, look, I can give you half of the money because I like to help young people. And then I found a bank who gave me the other half of the other 4,000 euros. And so I, I brought the money to the race and uh, with a check and I raced and uh, it was a very good investment. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So, so you borrowed half of the money from the bank? You went, you yes. went to get a loan to get that drive? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I presume you paid it back now? I did pay it back. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a, a hotel <laughs> manager in, in New Zealand who's still wanting paid back as well. So, um, oh dear. But I, hopefully he doesn't listen to this. Uh, hello to our Kiwi listeners. Um, <clears throat> so, but in that Le Mans, the, 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 one, the race you won, you could go a lap longer, couldn't you? And why, why was that? Why, how did that come back? Because I, I just all I read was that you know, well, we could do a lap longer. How and, and why? Uh, you should be interrogated because you're preparing really well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> My P45 is on hold for oh, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just for a day or two. <laughs> um, so when we did this power car tests, uh, I'm, I, st I studied technology of car engineering and car design. I spoke with the Porsche guys and because Porsche was our engineer, it was a semi-factory deal. It was pri uh, privately run, but with factory support. And we we then discussed a lot, and I said, why do we not do special fuel-saving maps? And we try to save power on certain gears, which we only use in corners, uh, and then only on this. Now you can easily program that. Back then, the technology wasn't that far. So we managed to do that, actually. But funnily enough, the Porsche engineers did not inform the Porsche company about it. 
and they all thought we can only do 12 laps. And we only did 12 laps in all the testing and practice sessions because we knew that's the only way to beat the factory Porsche, the, the mighty GT1 Porsche, um, that we go a lap longer. And we only opened that special trick in the race. It, it still meant we had to drive very fuel efficient, but it gave us that extra lap, which then cuts down quite a few pit stops over 24 and um, that made us win the race. I love stories like that. I think it's, I think it's great. Um, now, as you said, the winning Le Mans changed things dramatically. Um, you were then approached by Flavio Briatori um, for a test with the Benetton. Um, tell us about that, because again, uh, did, was it a test, or did you did, did he call you up for a race seat, or had to walk, how how did it come about? Uh, before I went to Le Mans, the whole story, I was so desperate to race anything because. I had basically nothing. It was just coinciding when I got the phone call to race that uh, Opel. I tried to have a meeting with Flavio and I succeeded. And um, because he knew that I won races in, in Formula 3 and fought for the championship, but he saw I have no more really sexy sponsorship behind me. I wasn't that attractive. But anyway, in the very short meeting, he said, so what are you doing next? And I said, well, in a uh, one month's time, I go to Lima. He said, basically, I guess to end the meeting, I don't know. He said, ah, if you win Lima, uh, I will offer you a test. And literally on Monday, after I won Lima, there was a fax <laughs> arriving at home and saying, okay, uh, at this period of the year, we offer you a two-day test. Um, we will be everything and just come and do the test are you will to do so and yeah of course i was will so he stuck to his word and i had the two days of testing it was a shootout against jano truly physicella paul tracy was there and myself of who will get the test and reserve driver seat and then i had a little bit of money saved from working as a road safety instructor and some other willing and dealing and i took the money went to David Sears, says, I know you have an old Formula 3000, it's very similar speed to the Formula 1 cars. I need one day of testing in Estoril to get me ready back into single-seater driving. He said, that's not much money, but I will help you. So I paid for that uh, to get a race or single-seater fit. And it was a good investment because, uh, again, I was sitting in the car after two laps. Uh, I was on the base on the few tenths of the regular drivers and ended up uh, just a tenth behind Gerhard Berger, two tenths faster than Alesi and fastest of the juniors. And that immediately gave me the um, testing and reserve driver contract with Benetton at the time. And is, am I right in thinking that that's, um, <coughs> that's kind of where your, uh, did I read that you, uh, your feedback in that test had a bearing, was the fee I seem to remember you saying that your feedback was very well received and uh, what, what was this feedback and for someone who hadn't driven a Formula 1 car before how could you give the, the feedback? <laughs> um, I'm always very technical orientated but I was a bit lucky that at that time with Opel we did a lot of work on differential and a lot of work on power steering and that was the two main subjects of this test and uh, there was Pat Simmons um, who is a long time a friend of mine but kind of a mentor as well because I learned a lot from him and Ellen Bermain who is now at uh, uh, Lotus Renault um, and long time in Enstone and with these two I had a lot of conversations and then 
I was just driving and supplying feedback how I feel it and what I have also seen with Opel to be honest of how we could improve things and it worked out really well and they've been very impressed in parallel with the good lap times they said uh, that's exactly what we need and because my English wasn't that good I need to s I was sticking to very short feedback but where I was very comfortable that they understand exactly what I mean and it turned out that this is what exactly they were looking for and that Pat uh, said to me after I think already my third run is I think you will get this job because you deliver exactly what we were asking for. Your, um, your understanding of the technical side of, of, of driving, was that something that came naturally to you as you were growing up through, through karting or is it something that you consciously felt you had to apply to boost your natural talent level? How, how did that work together? Some guys just rely on talent and forget the technical side. Yeah. So I need to define a little bit when we speak about technical understanding. I think it's not really necessary that you understand vehicle dynamics, aerodynamics, tire science, so on. It helps if you does to understand, but what most of the engineers said is was my strength is that I can speak in I can deliver the messages as they are, as they want it. Because in the end of the day a driver describes emotions and feelings. And that's something which an engineering brain cannot process. The engineering brain wants facts, figures, and pre-digested into the right message. And I think that's what I understood. And that comes basically from being a driver trainer instructor. And my, my dad uh, made the global leading company in driver training. And I worked as an instructor and I, I picked up how to communicate what is oversteer, what is understeer, how it applies, what's my influence on any vehicle dynamic issues. Mm. And that gave me an advantage, definitely. I can imagine how, you know, your first Formula One test, so many drivers could have just been completely overwhelmed by their emotions at that point. But you managed, I guess you managed to control that and allow the technical mm. feedback to, to shine through. Yeah. yeah, thank God, otherwise I wouldn't <laughs> be here. Because <laughs> I realized this is one of my key strengths. Yeah. Uh, which then later gave me lots of contracts also, uh, very well paid contracts to actually be there to develop uh, the product, which is the race car. Do, do you think it actually helped in an ironic way that your, your English at the time was relatively limited, so you had to kind of keep things short and simple? Yes, absolutely, indeed, uh, because it's too easy to get lost in long stories, like you can see already and listen. You're speaking to three motorsport <laughs> journalists who are renowned for never yeah. writing to We're here all night. <laughs> <laughs> So, but indeed, because you need to put the package into exactly what matters, and that's also a message to all the young drivers: is like, you know, don't speak a story, speak what needs to be said, especially during a test or during a practice. Later on, when there is time, engineers also love to hear the long story, but uh, package it short and precise. Uh, we're going to come on to your your Formula One debut and then also Formula One career, um, and we've got loads of readers' questions. So we're going to come to those in a second. However, before we go anywhere, um, Simon, have you have you got a Valentine's Day present yet for your wife? 
Strangely, strangely no, not. No, no. <laughs> have, well, I, I, I have, I have good news because um, if you go to shop.mercedes-benz.com and you use the code be my Valentine, it's very weird looking Simon in the eye when I say that. Um, use be my Valentine as a code. You get ten percent off um, loads of stuff from aftershave to bracelets to to everything like that. So do go to shop.mercedes-benz.com. Um, there's loads of stuff on there, and you're not too late for Valentine's Day. So don't forget, everyone. You've been warned. Um, right, the, the Formula One debut, um, it's, this was by no means a normal debut in, kind of in, in any sense, because it was a late call to go and see Flavio, which I think you replied and said, I can't right now, not knowing what the call was about. And then you, when you did finally go there, um, you had to learn the track via Autosport's map of it. Um, <laughs> tell, me about, tell me about the call from Flavio and, and telling him to not piss off but sorry i can't <laughs> run <laughs> so that was in the, the year where i was test driver i did a lot of testing uh, but also uh, um, i raced for mercedes in the sports car championship in the, in the clk clk yeah. yeah gt1 um so i was on the way to the nürburgring um we had the chance to win the world championship race event i got a phone call on the wednesday from uh, flavio's pa rosella and she said ah Flavio wants you in England, uh, can you come? I said, no, I cannot come, I have my Mercedes gear on. I'm on the way to a race, sorry, uh, has to wait. She said, okay. So five minutes later, the telephone rings. She's like, no, can you please come to England? I said, no, I'm at the airport, I'm checking in, sorry, I cannot come. 30 seconds later, I get the phone call and it didn't need a telephone because I could hear the screaming <laughs> over the channel <laughs> uh, of Flavio in his typical English, which is hard to understand. And I can't <coughs> say the F word of you so come we here. We can beep it no, out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> beep. And so I understood, okay, I have to come. So then I uh, changed my flight, went to England um, and went to his place. And basically he told me that I have to to take this ticket. It was a Concorde ticket, fly to Canada and race the car. And I said, Okay, um, we sh still now should call Mercedes to inform them that I'm not there, but the contract says if I'm substituting Formula 1 takes priority. So he did this phone call, I took the Concorde ticket, jumped in the plane, and then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, it's Canada, it's a racetrack, I don't know, I don't even know, is this clockwise, anti-clockwise, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> then thank God for Autosport. <laughs> and you can beat uh, that out too. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> don't worry. And... That's how I went to Canada, yeah. Um, and, and in the race, you were running as high as fourth and then dropped back to sixth, and, but that you were there or thereabouts when your drive shaft went. Um, <laughs> just talk me through the emotions of, get, of being told that you're going to make your Formula One debut and then to be, for it to be going so well and then yeah. for that to happen. So it was quite an interesting race because on the... Of course, it was overwhelming, but um, uh, it was cool. On the start, just before you're not allowed to touch the car, mechanic turned around and broke the mirror off. But not the mirror which I need to see. The, I don't care about that. But it had the telemetry antenna inside back in the day. So the cable was damaged. So I could see in Pat Simmons' eyes, which got pretty big, it's like, this is a problem. <laughs> so then they taped and somehow managed that this mirror stays on my Benetton. So a little bit of stress, but never mind. I got going and then I found myself in a good position. I overtook a few guys, um, running fourth, 
knowing my strategy could actually bring me onto the podium. Bang, my um, uh, fire extinguisher goes and it sprayed all into my visor so I couldn't see. So then I went off uh, because I couldn't see anything. And um, until the whole spraying was finished, my tires got dirty so I lost a few places. As you mentioned, I dropped back to six. But anyway, I kept going again on up to fourth. And then uh, I had the only technical failure that year with a drive shaft uh, breaking. And I was a little bit annoyed, of course, at the time. But even looking back is how the strategy unfolded. I would have been on the podium and that would have been a pretty cool start of a Formula 1 career. But despite that, didn't Jean Todd come up to you at the end of the race and and start to and say how good a drive you'd done? Yeah, it was on the way home in the plane. Uh, he was he knew I was on the same plane back to Paris because I went to the test in Paul Rica. So he came, we chatted. He was a Ferrari team boss at the time and, uh, you know, when just a year before you don't even know if you are doing anything in motorsport to then have a situation where the top dog team boss is coming and asking okay how long is your contract and telling you he watched the, the lap times and he understood all the issues i had during the race you know that suddenly you're on cloud seven so it's interesting that how much attention team bosses pay to pay to other drivers isn't it um i did promise that i'd i'd answer ask some of the readers questions. I got one here talking about your time at Benetton from William Oldacre um, and he says hi Alex I trawled through some old magazines a week ago and found some interesting comments you made about your time at Benetton saying that you were grateful that they'd given you your F1 break but that in the end they made your life a misery. <laughs> Can you elaborate on your difficulties <laughs> with the team? We have quite direct <laughs> questions from our readers. Yeah but uh, <laughs> maybe I also did direct uh, comments <laughs> after two coffees. Um, <laughs> What was difficult in the end of my Benetton days was, and I've mentioned it in other interviews, that um, that was a period of time where Flavio left and came back. I had no management contract. I was put on the spot. I stood my grounds. And that was a lot of political s fights in the background, which if you're talking of sport, and as an athlete, all you should do is focus on the driving and not trying to survive in it team atmosphere which was pretty ruthless back in the day. It also beat other drivers like Fisichella, Julie, who had similar experience. But much more than this is I was overweight. And back in the day I was you know, you're told you're not allowed to uh, say that in the media. Uh, there back then also no one really understood okay what, what is overweight. Uh, because nowadays everyone knows it's 10 kilo and the Formula 1 car is 4 tenths of a second. If someone is 10 kilo overweight, we all feel sorry for him. Back then, not allowed to speak about it. Very few journalists picked it up. But you can't materialize it. And it, it, it was, uh, I, I look back and it's like, well, of course no one designed the car to be on purpose overweight. But it was. And my average... Uh, lap time deficit to Giancarlo Fisichella was two and a half tenths over the season but I was uh, average 12 kilo overweight so if you would uh, recalculate it like in the first two seasons especially the first season I would have been ahead of Giancarlo and we would have been again a super close match and that was uh, jeopardized by the overweight and no one really saw it and then again with a little bit of a fallout with Flavio at the time that 
uh, put my Formula One career to a halt in that moment, and that's why I was uh, quite disappointed and just emotional and made such comments. Because mm. well, in in the year two thousand, that was when when he brought Button in, um, and then you ended up with a five-year testing contract from McLaren. It, why did that happen? Is that because it, when Button came in, there was so little left, or do why why go to McLaren on on a full testing contract? Um, I played a little bit casino, but also the logic behind was is that I wanted to go into a territory where it has nothing to do with uh, anyone I had to deal before in the first three years at Benetton. Um, and um, Mercedes, together with Ron, offered me a very interesting contract. And I said, you know what, I go testing there. I convinced them that I'm good. Maybe they give me a chance to race. So I, I, I did this move. I don't regret it. It was two times extremely close to race for them full time. But then uh, they decided to take Kimi instead of me uh, or one time renew uh, one of the existing drivers. Yeah, never mind. That's, uh, that, that's life. But the decision was based on just getting into a neutral team where I can just focus again on the driving. Um, I, this seems like a good idea to talk about your different coloured boots, um, because <laughs> there is a question uh, somewhere, I can't find it right now, um, who wants to, uh, someone wants to know the story behind the different coloured boots. I'm, I'm saying we want to mention it now, uh, because I think you were banned when you were at McLaren from having different coloured boots, um, and they then came <laughs> back, so, so tell us <laughs> sort of what wonder, happened wonder and why. I wonder whose decision that was. Oh, I don't know, it might have, might have been called Ron, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, actually Ron didn't ask me personally, he sent someone first, he's like... <laughs> If you would potentially have a McLaren contract, would you be okay with having two colored boots? And I said, yes, of course. <laughs> I'm not Actually, I'm not superstitious about that. How it started was in New Zealand when I raced in Formula Ford. I only found a red and a blue shoe. I raced with it. I won the race. So my team boss said, you have to keep it. But I found out that the media instantly focuses on it and I had much more media return and again as a young guy all you want is media return that you can please the sponsors and find more money so I, I clicked and it's like okay that's something which is just a little marketing thing so simple minds journalists really isn't it <laughs> oh but different Valen coloured boots uh, I mean Rossi did the same didn't he he recognised that Valentino Rossi recognised early in his career that if he changed his helmet colour or if he had dressed as a chicken after a race or whatever that he would attract the press he obviously had the talent to, to go with it you know to generate that but um, what, one thing I was going to ask and, and I'm not quite sure how to phrase it without it sounding insulting um, at what point in a racing driver's career does he or she recognise that they're getting slower you know it's very <laughs> simple <laughs> the stopwatch doesn't lie <laughs> you know so it's very very simple um, but um, in the term of a sportsman's career, you always have some up and downs. You, whenever you realize you're not on top of your game, either someone tells you, or you have better. You find out yourself is okay. What do I have to change that my mind is sharp again? But that's the key to become a real champion or to become just someone who was close but didn't succeed. That's what I consider myself. And I knew that on a good day uh, in F1 I could do sensational and stand up and beat uh, lap times of someone like Raikkonen and Hakkinen etc. But I was never consistent enough. And 
that's specially for racing and tuning my mind. And uh, now I don't want to get too philosoph philosophical, but I looked into this very carefully because I never had that before in my racing. But because I was always so self-confident. But then when you're in F1 and suddenly so much happens to you and you're still a spring chicken in a political world where it's not only about a goal which you can chase, it's suddenly you're there and you have to succeed against many top talents of many generations. Um, you need much more than just talent and a little bit of self-confidence. And that was knocked in my case and I could not recover from that. But the great champions, they make sure that each weekend they are absolute top of the game and they win multiple world championships. And uh, that's what in F1 I didn't have. I then came to sports car racing and my natural love was so good that every weekend I didn't even have a doubt in the abilities and it worked out very well. Can I ask you, you mentioned doing great things on certain days in Formula 1. Ask you about the 1998 Monaco Grand Prix. I remember the late great writer Alan Henry, uh, I think he was in writing an auto course. He said it was as though Michael Schumacher had come up, and he was found himself. He was, he was racing against himself because you were that day. I mean, you were. It was it was a fantastic battle. You just kept him behind all the time, interlocking wheels. He wasn't getting through, and then later on, you had that big accident in the tunnel. But that was a that was a real kind of moment when a lot of people went, "Wow." Yeah, so I'm still very annoyed about that race. Simply because I wasn't actually racing, Michael. I came, uh, I was on a different strategy. Mm. So I was fighting for P2 in the race and he was fifth or seventh. And I ran up into a train of cars I had to lap and he was with fresh tires behind me, but pit stop corrected, he was yeah, way behind, behind yeah. me. Um, and then I thought, okay, um, I think he will not overtake me and if I take Löw's hairpin from the outside I might be able to overtake one of the lapped cars. He dived in and when he dived in I should have stayed calm and said I'm not racing him. Okay, uh, it will delay me a little bit. But by the time my lap times were well on, on target for P2 behind Hakkinen. But then my fuse clicked into macho mode and I said actually I'm not going to let that German guy just <laughs> overtake me. You I have didn't to call him a German guy <laughs> at the time, did you? That's uh, not the phrase you used at the time. <laughs> not inside the helmet, uh, but that stays private. Um, but uh, we were friends at the time, I have to say. So I said, no, I'm going to fight back, which it looked cool on telly, but actually it was just a simple, stupid mm. move because with all the wheel banging, I damaged my rear suspension, which then which later collapsed, caused, caused, uh, yeah, caused, caused the, the accident and took me away a great result. Um, and I, I regret that moment where my brain, my fuse just snapped. Well, to fast forward to 2005, um, and Juan Pablo Montoya injured his shoulder playing tennis on a motorbike. Um, and you were drafted in for that, uh, f for the race at Imola. Um, you know, we were talking about your height earlier. That was a, you, can hardly, you can only turn on some corners with one hand. Um, yet you still you finished on the podium after Button was disqualified. Um, uh, talk us a bit about, tell us a bit about racing at Imola in that McLaren with, with, with one hand, basically, because it doesn't sound like the yeah. most fun thing you can I, do. I want to <laughs> say how the whole thing came up that I didn't fit, because maybe that's interesting and uh, uh, not too many people know. I actually, in 2004, I had a great offer from uh, Ford and Jaguar to join them, and we agreed the terms, and it just needed the signature of Ron and McLaren, 
on the release papers and throughout the design phase of the McLaren for 2005 that went on negotiated and then when the designer uh, Mike Coughlin asked the team management do I have to design the car for Alex or not the, he was told no we are just about to release Alex into this contract uh, three-year contract uh, good payment secured by Detroit so a nice nice little contract so then Mike went on and said, okay, I don't have to design this car for this tall, lanky Austrian. Uh, I can make it nice and small. That's what he did. But then I wasn't released because uh, the shareholders decided, no, actually, we prefer to keep him as an asset. And I had no say in this. But then I was suddenly back. Montoya injured the shoulder. The first racer didn't fit. So uh, my one of my best friends then got the drive. Uh, for the race in Bahrain, Pedro de la Rosa. But by contract, I had the first right on a substitute role. So then they made an incredible effort for a lot of money, working flat out, uh, which now much later I appreciate what effort they went through, to fit me into the car, but I still only could drive one-handed around hair, uh, right-hand hairpins because uh, my hands got stuck on the legs. and. Um, Anyway, uh, I knew I had to take the chance um, and can't wait for another race and give Pedro another chance. So in the end, I, I realized I must go into this car. They done the effort of just about legal to, to race this car and it worked out all right. Uh, because you then, you then went to Williams as well. Um, <clears throat> and it was the move there, was that because... Uh, was that partly because of Frank and Patrick? Because they're sort of real racers, Frank and Patrick. I think everyone has a soft spot for, for Williams in Formula One. Is, was that part of the reason behind moving there? Um, While well, we just spoke about the race in Imola, at the same time I had an offer from uh, um, Newman Haas to go to race IndyCars. Again, top contract, but I had this race and I said, no, I'm not going. Uh, because I was told I will also race the next race. So I was already the year before designed out of the car, then was told I was doing the next race. And I took it all personally, but I didn't do the next race. So I got so cranky and I was a little bit uh, too aggressive than maybe in some of the meetings that we realized, okay, in 2005, after five years, uh, it's maybe better for me to move on and change team. And I'm not proud of that moment. I'm just telling you honestly how it was, because I now understand fully that as a team, they have to look after their interest and they didn't do anything against me. Uh, but back, back then I didn't understand that. So I said, no, I need to go and, and move on. And that was the natural end of the contract. Um, so I spoiled the American contract with not doing it because of the Imola race, but then not uh, renewing with, or they not uh, renewing with me for a future relationship. I had to go and look for something else. And really, really late in the season, I had uh, options to go to DTM and so on, but I still preferred to be single-seater. I got a phone call from Frank Williams and he said, look, you may be not that interested, but um, having a test cockpit, I want you uh, to help us develop the car. Can you come? So I said, yeah, okay, Frank, I'll sit in the plane. I'm, I'm with you tomorrow morning. Um, and that was the start of my relationship with the Williams team. 
And uh, am I right in thinking that you you went to go meet him, and then he said he'd call you back with an offer, and you went off to go and buy parsnips for your Christmas dinner, and he called you whilst you were buying. Where do you said get parsnips? this stuff from? <laughs> from from <laughs> Motorsport. <laughs> this, that was in Motorsport magazine. Okay. It's available at all good box, bookstores, by the way. But it shows um, how much progress you made because you could afford to buy parsnips. It wasn't a third of a parsnip; it was a whole parsnip, maybe, maybe yeah. more. Well, you need to know I'm married to an S expert. Uh, <laughs> To Julia, and obviously I'm from Austria. I don't even know what parsnips are, but uh, our Christmas uh, meal includes parsnips. And then it was uh, two weeks before Christmas when I came to see Frank, and he told me, "Look, in two hours we come back with you because we didn't agree on the terms he offered." I said, I, "I'm not coming with these terms," and he said, "Okay, give me two hours." So I went to Wantage in the supermarket to try to find the parsnips. <laughs> and he called me and I said, Frank, sorry, I, I can only come back in half an hour. I'm just buying parsnips. And he was laughing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's We've co- this is the podcast. We've covered everything from Concord to parsnips. Yeah. Has this ever happened before? Viry yeah. yeah. It's fabulous. Um, I'm going to jump in though. Yeah, um, IndyCar. So you had an offer from Newman Haas. Had you, had you tested a car at this point? Have you ever tested an IndyCar? How did that, how did that no, come about? And at this time, the IndyCars were—I mean, now they're—they're they're always cool. But at this time, I think, it was the peak of of IndyCar. It was—they were cool, and they were just everything I admired from racing, also oval racing. Um, and before that, I always said I really want to go at one point to the states to do these races. Uh, so it was not easy to decide um, to say no to this offer, um, but I did because I thought racing in Imola. And with Juan Pablo's injury, I might get more races. Didn't work out, but it's one of the decisions you have to make. And I've got a question here, actually, from Matt, um, who wants to know what the differences were in the working environment at McLaren and Williams. I mean, obviously, both extremely successful Grand Prix teams with, with, with loads of history. Um, but they're very quite different teams. And was, was that apparent on the inside? Um, yes and no. In the end of the day, there's one parallel between all motorsport organizations I've worked with is their engineering and process driven. So and that in the end makes them all the same because they look at something, they analyze it, they improve. They look at something, they analyze, they improve. You always try to find the weakest link and improve it. And that's uh, a beautiful uh, process and evolution which works so well in in all these top teams. However, there is of course a difference, but that's more to do with the characters and the behavior of the team bosses, uh, you know. And yes, uh, Frank Williams uh, is very different to a Flavio Priadore or Ron Dennis. Um, but in the end, for the real working, it, they are more or less the same. And and it was at Williams that you you finally got your race seat alongside Nico Rosberg. But I don't. You weren't very happy in that race seat, were you? And you I mean, you, from the outside, you would have thought. You know, you've been testing at McLaren's one-off race, testing at Williams, and now you've got this race seat. Um, what, what was going wrong? Why, why weren't things clicking? Um, how much time have we got left? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're okay. We, t- we can run over. So, as long as you're um, not going to miss your flight. No, don't worry. So, when I was testing, you know, with all the s- few years before, at McLaren, I was so keen to come back racing, I was sometimes close, and I kind of, with this fight, burned out a little bit, mentally. Uh, and I thought, ah, when I come back in the race car, I will get back this fire and hunger, like I was used to from since my entire sporting career. And 
as a third driver with, uh, and on top of it with tires which were super sticky on the front, didn't give you much understeer and you could chuck the car into corners like crazy. That was my style. I came to race in 2007, they changed the tires to a super weak front tire. Uh, uh, so it was only understeer limited and completely not my style. With and on top, I didn't get this thousand percent hunger, which I thought I will. And at, at this point of the, se uh, of, the of my career, so like I started saying, "Hey, why is that? You are back to where you wanted to be after quite a fight, and it's not coming." So then, these two things made me a little bit like not not unhappy but thinking okay you must check because if you compete against the best in the world if you are not a hundred percent each every second uh, it's an uphill battle and that's what I found myself in so on some tracks it worked very well especially in race stream my average times was quicker than Nico and together we managed to get a lot of points and finish fourth uh, in the constructors which was the best result by far for Williams at this period of their existence but I demand for myself more than 99.9% and that wasn't there and I simply think I was it, it was mainly down to me a for not being able to change my style to fit the tires but why is because I think I was too burned out from all the years of fighting to come back into a seat. And I was hoping for the kickstart to happen automatically and didn't. How early in that season was it, 2007? How early in the season was it that you, it actually dawned on you thought, heck, this, this isn't going to work? Um, uh, early, I would say. Um, but then, of course, you, you fight on and it's not that you, I just give up and walk home. Because I was fighting. But... Uh, throughout mid-season round Canada you then realize okay this is much more uphill struggle than I was hoping uh, you're trying to find excuse uh, so did I but in the end I was relatively honest to myself I spoke also with Frank it coincided also that the team knew that if they want to come back to the front they need uh, way more budget then uh, of course there was Katsuki Nagajima also coming with some support from the engine supplier from Toyota uh, but we had a very open chat about all of this and then said, okay, um, I will move on into the place I love, which was sports car racing. And uh, he can go and chase some budget and change his uh, team driver bearing. Uh, that was the decision, more or less. You mentioned going into sports cars there. Um, what was it like going back to Le Mans again for the first time in so long in, in 2008 and um, the cars must have been so different to what you'd used you know when you first won Le Mans um, did you feel as though you were you in a sense you had kind of come home and when you first went out at Le Mans no it, I, it, I felt like an alien actually <laughs> um, because this uh, it was with uh, the diesel Peugeot lap times were very fast and after my years in F1 where uh, we we drivers complain about bumps and curbs and all sorts of things because we want everything to perfection by nature and the industry gives you perfection then you go back to Le Mans where there's a bit of grass on the track and dirt and no one cares about it and yet you go 260 through the Porsche corners with two meters of runoff uh, the first few laps are 
I think I had to change my underwear <laughs> uh, because the, the, your teammates pile through with 20, 30 k's more where you do a little lift, they just go flat out and that was a wake-up call and uh, okay, it only took me a few laps to come back but it's like, wow, you know, it's a different kettle of fish which um, was surprisingly cool and refreshing because then suddenly it was a different world, a challenge Every time I was sitting in the car, I got back this love sensation from my 11-year-old dream sitting in that Porsche car. And bang, the love and the, and the ambition and the hunger and everything was back. Fully kick-started automatically and every split second of my sports car driving, then I enjoyed now, you obviously won it again in, in 2009, but I d just wanted to ask a little bit, because you were also testing for Honda at the time with, with Braun and Fry before it became Braun GP, but you were doing thousands of miles of testing for Honda. You were also doing thousands of miles of testing for Peugeot. Um, just talk us through a, a sort of normal week, because it was ridiculous how many miles you were actually doing. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And there was one week which is not normal in no one's life is doing three days of endurance testing with Peugeot, driving in the car, normal road car, overnight to Barcelona. So I tested in Barrica, driving overnight to Barcelona, to three days of only long runs, unfortunately with heavy fuel and old tires for Honda, uh, working on the um, race base, driving again overnight or being driven by a friend because I was already dead, <laughs> into uh, the next Peugeot endurance session. So. I had uh, seven days on the row where I was driving almost every day and every night. I forgot the mileage, but it was just <laughs> insane. <laughs> In a way, it was also cool because uh, it's not so many times you yeah. can do that, yeah. you know. Amazing contrast between those cars as well. I mean, how, do you, how did you find yourself flipping into the two different styles required for a high-revving Formula 1 car and a relatively low-revving endurance car? How, how did you as a driver adapt to that? By that time, of my career was quite easy. Um, and also the driving style, the tyres we've chosen were very different. I find it more difficult if cars are very similar and you have to change between them. Because if they're so far apart, um, yeah, the, your skills will very quickly adopt. If it's very close and it's fine-tuning here and there and it's a little bit different, then actually you struggle more. So... Um, Plus, to be honest, it wasn't that I had to go out in the first lap, prove myself with a new lap record. So if I have three, four laps to adjust. Uh, but I, I do remember back in these days when F1 wasn't very powerful, that the, the diesel torque felt so much stronger. And I was a bit disappointed going into the F1 car in terms of power output. <laughs> It's funny yeah, to hear that. The idea of a diesel sports car yeah. more impressive than a, a yeah. Formula One car. Yeah. Um, we've, got, we've got time for a few questions, which I'm going to do in a second. But it was around this time in 2008 that you, uh, you drove the doctor's car at Singapore, didn't you? And that, this was obviously what has now become Singapore Gate. Um, and there was, you were quite busy in the doctor's car with, with PK's um, crash or slide off or, or whatever we call it. Um, the local doctor had a few problems, didn't he? <laughs> Yes, because <laughs> we were sitting there and Gary Hartstein was the race doctor and you sit in the medical car, obviously hoping that you just sit in the air-conditioned Mercedes car uh, and watching the race on your little screen and then going home because as a medical car driver, you just don't want to be in action. And then 
we hear on the radio crash, drivers not moving. And then suddenly from just hanging around there thinking, okay, that's my race weekend. Um, when the doctor next to you suddenly puts this face on, because he has other radio, and then it's like, my God, that's serious. And he says, quick, quick, quick. And then for me, quick means I go as fast as this car can go, which uh, you can debate if I'm talented or not, but it was definitely too much for the stomach of the Singaporean <laughs> local doctor <laughs> who was sitting behind me. <laughs> so he lost his lunch. <laughs> Filled the car with an interesting but not very pleasant smell. Which then, okay, we arrived at the scene of accident. Thank God he was fine and there was no drama. But then after the race, just when the jacket flag had stopped and the last car stopped, you're allowed to get out of the medical car. He came to shake my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and all I wanted is, oh my God, did he wash his hands? <laughs> anyway, but that was my little Singapore story. Brilliant. Uh, we're just going to take some of the some of the readers' questions. Um, we sort of dot around a bit. Uh, I could, there's quite a nice one here about because you're obviously the head of the GPDA, the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Um, uh, this K111. Um, I don't think he was christened that. I think that's just a, an online username. Um, he's asking, what does the GP, GPDA actually do, and also, what have you achieved that outsiders might not have heard of, that might not have been in the press, or um, yeah. So, what does it do, and then just an example of, of what you've achieved. Uh, good question. Um, so if you take the big scheme of the GPDA, is, uh, apart from F1 itself, the oldest organization and longest lasting organization. Uh, it's the, some people call it a union. We are not a union because we don't stop things happening. We actually uh, just want to have the drivers united and organize the various and really varying opinions of drivers and channel it to cooperate with the stakeholders. Um, sometimes that's confronting them. Um, because the drivers feel so and most 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 of the times it's just let's work together uh, over the years uh, the GPDA has most of the times been a driving force in asking the FIA to look into safety and improve the safety um, which when cars are safer nowadays you feel ashamed if you say F1 is safe I think it is a unique selling point of racing that we don't jeopardize performance, but we making the car safer and safer. I think it's a unique selling point. We should underline as a strength. Um, and these cars are incredibly safe. Uh, that means we can also race very aggressive and we can have such high speeds. And we can race Singapore, Drex, Monaco and still do it despite the entire world is moving into a safety cushion much more extreme than we do in racing. So that's something you can see that GPDA's role. Um, what you can't see and what is not in the media, for a particular reason, is not in the media. So I'm not wanting to name some of the examples, but we do have uh, an influence. Uh, we do have a very good cooperation. And one thing I can say is that very recently from a top, top FIA man, they said over the last few years, we have never had such a good dialogue between drivers and the rule makers and stakeholders. Uh, which definitely all of us find beneficial and uh, that's something I hope we can continue and I hope all of the drivers, not all of them are GPDA members, but they're all coming to the meetings and we see it as a together. We have to make sure that our sport uh, is fit for the future to attract more fans and to keep growing because 
the very beginning of the conversation we said is drivers have a very puristic view to and the simple aspect of racing is we went into this sport because we love it and we want it to be the coolest ever sport which millions of people around the world watching are excited about we don't think political we just want the best for this sport it's good it's great to hear that isn't it um for the f future of formula one uh, I one more question i'm sorry we've gone a little bit over time um I i'm sure the the listeners and, and viewers won't mind at all um but as long as you don't miss your flight um i quite like this one this is from uh, retty if you were boss of Wurtz grand prix team which of your former teammates would you have as your two drivers <laughs> no the first question i have is who finances the team um, there is a mystery backer who's giving you all the budget you need. Okay, good. <laughs> Simon. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, it's called Simon Aaron. No, it's, 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 a, it's a parsnip manufacturer from Wantage. That's right, yeah. 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 Never sold so many yeah. on the back of that Steven story. Steven Spielberg for ET's sales gone through the roof after this podcast. Uh, I wouldn't put any of my teammates because by now, <laughs> by now they're equally old as I am. So well past the due date. So um, unlimited budget. I don't know uh, who I put in. Actually, I could put in my sons. There we go. There we go. Keep the man in the family. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to have to be a three-car team. Otherwise, you're going to have a few problems to sort at home. Um, Alex, thank you so much for t um, t spending so much time with us and, and sharing all your all your memories. They've been absolutely brilliant. Simon, thank you very much. No Alan, thank you very much for doing all the audio and the video is per normal. And Nick, thank you very much for joining us for the very first podcast. I hope, it, I hope it didn't disappoint. Fabulous. <laughs> Loved it. Uh, we'll see you all in a couple of weeks for a podcast with Jodie Schechter, the 1979 Formula One world champion. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Fullmatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.